Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Well, it's wonderful to have all of you here as well this morning. And if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 5. We're taking a look at what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. But interestingly enough, nowhere in the scripture is it referred to as a sermon. But it is a time of teaching when Messiah gathered his disciples on a mount and taught them the following things in chapters 5, 6, and 7. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 23, we noted that Messiah continued his ministry throughout Galilee. We find in verse 23 that he was teaching in their synagogues over and over again. He's in the synagogue. And as you go throughout the life of Messiah, it is in the synagogue where he more often than not is found teaching God's word. He teaches it in other places, but he is often, most often, in the synagogue. As he begins to proclaim the good news and to heal all those that are in need of that news, not only spiritually but physically, healing those of various diseases, some suffering from all kinds of paralysis, etc., the crowds from Galilee follow him. His disciples gather around him. And in chapter 5, verse 1, when he sees the crowds, he brings the the disciples up on a mountain. He sits down, which is the Jewish manner of teaching and is still consistent in Jewish schools to this day. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. But as he taught them, he was overheard by the crowds that followed. So while his words are for the disciples, they are not to be ignored by anyone who would hear them. Now, that's very important to take note of because in chapters 5, 6, and 7, these are basically the characteristics or those elements that will characterize the believers that will be reigning with Messiah in the kingdom of God when it descends. This is the characterization of the followers of Messiah, what they will look like, how they will behave when his kingdom dawns. We make a mistake to think that the precepts in the Sermon on the Mount, as it is referred to, is the rules and regulations by which we are somehow to gain God's favor. These are the kinds of things that will characterize those who have embraced Messiah. It will characterize those who are living under his lordship, as it were, under him as king. But these are the things that will characterize those in the kingdom. That's why he says in verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when he makes reference to the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about that time when Messiah shall return and establish his kingdom on earth. 
In the meantime, as we anticipate that moment to occur, we who are the adherents of Messiah, we who have embraced him as our king, even though his kingdom as such has not dawned, are to live in a manner that is consistent with what is expected of us and all the citizens of the kingdom when it will dawn. He starts out by telling us, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word blessed, of course, does not mean to speak of being honored, although sometimes the word can mean that. When we talk about blessing God, we're talking about honoring God. We cannot do anything to help God out. We cannot make him better. We cannot convey grace to him. But when we bless him, we are honoring him. That's not what Messiah means here. Sometimes the word blessed means such as to give praise to. One of the Greek words, eulogetos, is where we get the word eulogy from. And thus when we eulogize someone, we bless them, we praise them. That's not what Messiah means here. Praised will be those who are the peacemakers, for example. The word here is equivalent to the Hebrew word ashrei. This is the word in Greek, makarios, which is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture, some 200 years before the time of Messiah. It's used for the Hebrew word ashrei, which means to speak of the outpouring of God's favor on a people. So when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he's saying, those upon whom God's grace has been poured out will come to recognize the poverty of their spirit, the need of their spirit. He says, blessed are such individuals, graciously bestowed with the favor of God, because one cannot receive the remedy for our poverty until we recognize it exists. Most people do not recognize that they are spiritually impoverished and spiritually poor. You and I, there was a time when none of us thought we were spiritually impoverished at all. In fact, we probably thought things were going very, very well. For some, they were going well financially. For some, they were going well relationally. For some, they were going well physically in all kinds of respects. And whether or not those aspects of our lives continued to go well or not, we began to realize that life was not found in the fulfillment of such things. Life was not found in the acquisition of more things. We came to realize that no matter what we had and how well we had it, there was a great need stirring in our hearts. And thus, as Augustine had said, our hearts are restless until they find their, what is it, rest in you. So when Messiah says, greatly favored of God are those who are poor in spirit, he means to say we are greatly blessed when we come to realize the poverty that dwells within in each and every one of us, that we are alienated from the life of God and all that he has in store for those who love him. And we are greatly blessed. Why? Because once we recognize that need, 
God can address the need, provide for it. And the promise is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, all of the second phrases in these passages are all in the future tense. Theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. And all of those second clauses are explanations as to why they are blessed. So what Messiah is saying is, greatly favored of God are the poor in spirit because theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. It is an assurance, a promise that God will bestow his kingdom upon us. And when it dawns in its fullness, we will enter that kingdom. Until such time, God dwells with us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And thus we manifest the qualities and characteristics of those that will reign with him in his kingdom. In verse 4, he says, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted by the grace of God. Greatly favored of God are those who once recognized the poverty of their spirit are moved to mourn because of it. And as we recognize our great need, we reflect on that need and why it exists, and we cry out to God, can you do something about this need, this void, this hole that I have in my heart? God brings that to bear in our lives in all kinds of different ways. I share with you how he brought it to bear in my own life as I was brought into circum certain circumstances which opened my heart and my mind and my soul to what really dwelt therein. And I realized that within me dwells no good thing. It was not that I thought that I was a miserable person. I'd never really seen a psychiatrist in my life, although I've talked to many counselors. I don't know if they've helped. You will be the judge of that. But I never dealt with a great deal of depression and anxiety and none of that kind of stuff. But as I went through my life, and I didn't have to go through much of it, I was only 17 years old at the time. But when God enabled me to see myself for who I truly was and not what I thought I was, and not what I thought others ought to see me as, I realize that within my members, within my innermost being, dwells no good thing. And I was moved, not just to acknowledge it and say, although at times perhaps I have, so what? That's just too bad. But I was moved to mourn and to say, I really would like something more of myself. Fortunately, someone had given me a Bible that had a Brit HaDashah in it, the New Covenant Scriptures. And as I began to read of Messiah for myself, like Judy, I was enthralled with who he was as I read of him and of what he did. And it wasn't just reading about a figure in history that was impressive. It was about encountering one who was alive right then and there and is alive today, of course, who spoke to my heart in the innermost recesses of my being. I don't always sense that kind of presence like I did at that moment, but I have now and again. And when I sensed his presence, I knew that I had much to mourn. But God in his compassion and grace 
reached out to me with his love and acceptance and filled me with great joy. And so when we are moved to mourn over our sin, and we would do well to take inventory of it that we could, it is then and only then that the Lord brings his comforting grace to bear on our souls. In verse 5, as we saw, he said, Favored of God are those who are meek, humble, for they will inherit the earth. Last week when I spoke on this, I made reference to Moses. And I had forgotten to bring in the whole point of making reference to Moses. Except I was pointing out how in so many aspects of his life, he certainly didn't seem meek to us, as you remember. What I failed to point out was in Numbers chapter 12, where he is referred to as the meekest man in all the earth. He was so called because at that moment in his life, as he came out of Egypt with those that he was leading, it was Aaron and Miriam, his brother and sister, who had spoken up against him because he had married a Cushite woman. Of course, the people of Cush were Egyptians. And one can see why some would look aghast at Moses, the deliverer of the Jewish people from Egypt, that he would turn around and marry an Egyptian woman. And it appears to be that there's something here about their, you know, I'm sort of like this about saying this, but it appears to be that there's an element of racism on the part of Aaron and Miriam. Not because of anything that is said of them. It only says that they had spoken out against them because he married a Cushite woman. But it's interesting what God does, isn't it? He then plagues, I guess we'd say, curses, judges, Miriam with leprosy. And the text is very clear. She turns white as snow. You have to imagine, why is that brought out? Is it because they had said something about her race, her skin color? Possibly. Don't know for sure, but it is intriguing to me that, you know, it could just say, struck him with leprosy. And we'd all know that was not a good thing. But the text says, struck with leprosy, and she became white as snow. And the judgment upon her necessitated that she be separated from the Jewish people for seven days during her time of uncleanness. It's in that context that Moses is said to be the meekest man in all the earth. Why? Because unlike the other aspects of his life that I made reference to, Moses never once defends himself. He never once says anything to Miriam or Aaron. He just leaves it in the hands of of God. It's like Paul says, vengeance is my, saith the Lord, do not repay evil for evil. And he's just quiet. And then God speaks. And this is really a, a very powerful statement. I bring it to your attention because we're very cavalier about such things. And I hesitate to say this because of my role at Beth Ariel and the various ministries. But here's the amazing thing. The Lord says to Aaron and Miriam, were you not afraid 
to speak out against my servant Moses? How often are we so quick to speak out about the leaders in our congregations? And here God says to Miriam and Moses, his brother and sister, Aaron, who will be the very first high priest, did you really think you had a right to speak against my servant? It's pretty powerful stuff. Moses is not a perfect man, but perfection is not the issue. The issue is the calling of God to the position a man or woman holds among the believers. And we would be remiss if we did not take note of God's concern for how we treat one another, but particularly those in leadership in our congregations. How quick we are, you know, when we leave churches to say, well, that man just couldn't preach well. That man just didn't minister to me. We speak out against God's servants without giving it a moment's thought that we may be in very serious trouble for doing so. In Psalm 105, it says something like, and I remember this passage, let me get it, I remember this passage because I'll tell you this story. Psalm 105, verse 15, 16, 17, something like that. You can check it out with me if you like. Psalm 105, I think it's 105. You know, I kept looking at it and missing it and then finding it. And, um I want to say verse 17. No, it's not that. Well, I'm not finding it. Oh, what is it? Oh, Psalm 115. Oh, I had the five right. See how that works. Psalm 115, verse... Oh, 105. Okay. See, I love it when we have these tag team kind of things. They, they save me from a lot of things. All right, so we said 105, verse... 15. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let me tell you this story. Years and years ago, I must have been 18, 19 years old. The fellow who led me to faith was only about four years older than me. And we were playing. We played in a worship team together. And I've shared with you some of my experiences there on the East Coast way back during the Jesus movement in the early 1970s. Although I'm really not that old, but I was, it was back, it was back then and there. So, um, so I remember this one time it was, and this fellow who led me to faith, who was only four years older, I knew him in high school, we we're playing together, we spent a lot of years together, and it was his birthday. So a group, and they, we just put up, or they put up a, a swimming pool, an above ground pool in the backyard of the parsonage that they were using for baptisms and stuff. But we figured, let's grab him and just throw him in. So we all gathered around and he fought us. I mean, like, he didn't want to do this. It wasn't like, okay, go ahead. It was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not going. I'm not going in there. And we said, oh, yes, you are. And we all gathered around him and we threw him in, you know. And then we just sort of enjoyed it. And one of the elders, by the name of, the name alone tells you, you know, you should fear for your life if he looks at you the wrong way. A fellow by the name of Bill Parker, you know. And he was from Macon, Georgia. Bill Parker, you know. I mean, he was like, and he was a steel worker, and he was the last guy that put the rivets in on the uh, upper uh, bars, I guess you call them, upper supports, upper supports of the Verrazano Bridge, tallest suspension bridge in the world. This is a guy who, when my family kicked me out of my home, they said, you could stay here at the, 
at the church, you know, and they gave me a key and a room and a bed, and I was living in this church for about a year or so. And Bill would wake me up every morning at 6 o'clock, Gary, get up, we're working. And he put me up on the steeple one time, you know, I said, up on the steeple, what am I going to do up there? He said, you're going to paint it. I said, paint it? I said, how am I going to paint it? He goes, well, you see this belt? I'm going to put it around your waist, I'm going to hold you up there. Well, I'm out there and I'm painting. I'm trying to be really cautious not to get drips all over the, all over the roof. And he's holding me. He goes, you know what, Gary? I said, yeah, but what? The sooner you're done, the sooner you come on down. Okay. <laughs> I start working. He's a very practical guy, but he was a tough guy. And he was a strong guy. And at that time, you know, he, he drove to the church, you know, one of these 1200cc Harleys, you know what I mean? He didn't fool around. And we threw the pastor into the pool. And he took us aside. He goes, I want to talk to you guys. So, oh no, you know, I couldn't sneak away. I'm living there, you know. <laughs> and he opens the Bible and he's, and he reads, do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. He said, you men, you young men should be careful about how you deal with the leaders in our congregation. Never forget that moment. And when I read the story of Moses, that's the line that struck me. Were you not afraid to speak up against my servant Moses? Moses never speaks up for himself. And the Lord says he is the meekest man in all the earth. And so Messiah tells us, greatly blessed of God, recipients of the fullness of the riches of God are those who have that kind of humility of status. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the kingdom. And I had said, uh, by way of illustration, I kind of like the idea, so I'll just share it one last time. You know, we look at animals like lions and tigers and, and uh, you know, predators. Thank you, Rick. Of course, it's Rick. Uh, predators and all that. And we say, those are the animals. If we had our choice, those are the animals we would want to be. I'd want to be a tiger man and just moving through up on a thing, stalking, you know, or a lion or any of these predators. And they stalk and they pr prey upon like lambs. If they are in their way, domesticated animals like dogs you know, cats. We would choose to be the predators. But what's interesting, even in the animal world, the endangered species are the tigers and the lions. But there's no endangered species among lambs or dogs or anything like that. The point is, the humble really do inherit the earth. You know? The predators, man, they get snuffed out if they're not the eagles. You know, we got to be careful. Don't, t t you know, touch with the eagles because they're endangered. But lambs, we eat them all the time and never get endangered. <laughs> they inherit the earth. Anyway, I kind of like that. But here's the thing today. Check this out. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. These first four beatitudes, blessed statements, good favor statements of God, they have to do with our condition, our need. We're to recognize our poverty of spirit, our poorness in spiritual things, as it were, which is to lead us to mourn over them, 
in which God then brings comfort and peace to our hearts, when we mourn over our lack of spiritual realities and our pride subsides, we become meek, we become humble like Moses were, not utterly defensive. And then we ask and we receive righteousness. (laughs) That's where righteousness comes from. The recognition of our spiritual need, our mourning for God to comfort us, our humility, and then righteousness flows out of our humble state. That's where it comes from. But righteousness is a funny word. We don't really like that idea, you know, because righteousness sounds to us like we ought not to be in the places we'd like to be, and we ought to be in the places we really don't want to be, you know. That's how righteousness hits us. It's sort of like what Mark Twain once said. You know, he said he read a lot about Jesus, read a lot about Yeshua, and he said, like him, I've been around a lot of good people. And he said, now I know why he wanted to hang out with the tax collectors and the sinners. (laughs) It's true. There's more fun there. And that's because this idea of righteousness conveys to us a sense of we can't have fun. You know, we got to watch the music we listen to. Oh, my goodness. You know, it'll open up our hearts to the evil one. We have to be careful of the things we watch. We have to, you know, I mean, we become so legalistic and stymied in life because we think righteousness is about avoiding bad things. So when I was first a believer and came into this church, they actually had a manual, a hard-covered booklet that was a manual. And in there it told us how we were supposed to live. And so how are we supposed to live? Now I think they've taken these things out, but some of you will identify with this, that no card playing was allowed. Couldn't go to movies. I went to some colleges that said I couldn't go to movies. I went to college that said I couldn't have a beard. I was born with a beard. (laughs) Not really. But, you know, they said I couldn't have a beard. And this is like crazy stuff. In this manual, it said you couldn't be involved with mixed bathing, so you couldn't go in the ocean (laughs) if somebody of the opposite sex happened to be in it somewhere in the world. (laughs) You know, so you had all of these kinds of things. It's all nonsense. Righteousness does not consist in that. Righteousness consists in life unto God. Now think of the word righteousness. If we take the ness off of it, It's righteous. But then that word reminds me of religious leaders who were castigated for their self-righteous ways. But righteousness is really about being upright. It's about living rightly. It's about manifesting the things that are joyous to God's heart. And to his mind. The scripture says, uh, Messiah, we are to hunger and thirst after uprightness besides, beside God, alongside God. Now that's another interesting thing, the hunger and thirst, because you and I generally don't hunger and thirst. 
Many of us have not just one, but maybe two refrigerators. And perhaps a freezer to go along with it. You guys don't hunger. There's always something there. And all of us have faucets. We just turn on and the water is there. So we never really thirst, thirst. But in the ancient world, if you had meat once a week, that was a pretty big deal. And if you were not in the right condition, drawing water out of a well could have been very prohibitive. And certainly living in a desert region made you very conscious of what it meant to hunger and thirst for food. The world tells us that we are to hunger and thirst for things that really do not nourish us. Right, it says like, for example, you know, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Now I'm told, they say, what happens in Vegas didn't happen. <laughs> you know. But what are the advertisers telling us? They're telling us you hunger and thirst after some things. You hunger and thirst, and myself included, we hunger and thirst after some things. We hunger and thirst after entertainment. We hunger and thirst, some of us, for romance. We hunger and thirst, some of us, for sex. We hunger and thirst for recognition. We hunger and thirst for honor and respect. Some hunger and thirst for power. And if you listen to the advertisements, they tell you all those hungers and thirsts are the right things to be hungering and thirsting for. But in reality, that's just fast food stuff. In reality, when we find that we fill ourselves with that stuff, we go away starving, empty, and knowing that we haven't really been nourished. Messiah is telling us we're hungering and thirsting for the wrong things. The hunger and thirst is there, but it's directed at the wrong thing. What we need is God's righteousness. Not righteousness of ourselves as reflected in not bathing in the wrong places, but righteousness that only God can impart by his grace. Here's another interesting thing. I love this passage. I remember hearing a pastor speak on this passage, and this one phrase he had is stuck with me throughout. He said, I'm so glad that Messiah does not say, blessed are the righteous. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's a big difference. Makes it a little easier. <laughs> you know, we just have to hunger and thirst for it. But here's the neat thing. Hunger and thirst indicates life. The problem is, if we're not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's because we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Think about that. How often do we think, I don't need to hunger and thirst for righteousness because I've already got it. And when we come to that place, what we're really saying is, I have no need. And when we say we have no need, we've just lost everything we thought we had. If you think about this, in the ancient world, when the pharaohs were buried in their tombs, what did they bury them with? Everything they had in life, including food. And when centuries later we dig down into those tombs, sometimes that food is still there. Seeds have still been found. And other things as well. But they're not there. <laughs> the pharaoh, that is. They're not there. Because the pharaoh is dead. Hungering and thirsting indicates life. And so if you have life, 
spiritual life that has come about because you've recognized the poverty of your need and your spirit. If you really have life because you've mourned over that need and what you saw and God comforts you. If you've mourned over what God has provided with you with, you are brought to your knees in humility, though he promises to raise us up. If we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, he will in due time raise us up. But if we so humble ourselves, then he fills us with righteousness. And there's never a moment in our lives where we're not in need of his ongoing filling of righteousness. Just like food. How many of us, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, we go away from the table and say, I can't eat another bite, at least not till five (laughs) o'clock. Then we're back in that refrigerator, man, and we're, you know, snacking away. And we said, I can't eat another bite. Because hunger and thirst is never quenched until we're ultimately with him. And until we're with him, we will hunger and th- if we know him, hunger and thirst after righteousness. But when we do so, he will continually fill us to make us more like himself. In concluding this section, you have to think, right? You're all thinking this too. That it says of Messiah twice in his life that I can think of that he thirsted for something. You remember the woman at the well? He said, I thirst. And she went and got him water. She says, but you being a Jew, why would you speak to me? The disciples went into the city, right, to get food. But he was thirsty. And when they come back, never says anywhere he drank from the well, but maybe he did. But when they come back and they say, and he says, look, I'm not hungry anymore. He says to his disciples, I have food that you know not of. When Messiah thirsted, God provided him with the antidote to his thirst. Spiritual rejuvenation by individuals that were responding to his offer of salvation. It made me just think at Sukkot. Yeshua stands up. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I'll never forget that passage because while in seminary and I preached on that passage in a preaching class and it was, it was being videotaped and I had to sit and watch the video after it was done. And I have to tell you, I'd never listen to my messages. Not after that. I'd never listen again. But I had to do this with Mary Lou, you know, my wife, to critique it with me. <laughs> I said, please don't give her any more fuel. You know, she lives with me. She critiques a lot of things. That... But no, she had a look. And as I began to preach, and I got to that passage, and you know, it was the great day of the feast, and Yeshua in a loud voice yelled out, Out of his, out of, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me, and out of his belly shall flow livers of riving water. <laughs> and Mary said, What did you say? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Rewind that tape, you know. <laughs> so I'll never forget that passage. But yeah, if we thirst, Out of our innermost being, the Lord will provide us with living water. Even if it's riving, it'll be living. (laughs) 
And one last thing that just comes to mind, when Yeshua is giving his life for us, he says, I thirst. And at that moment of thirst, he provides us with the living water. The thief next to him asks, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Messiah doesn't say, look, there's a lot of people on the list here. You know, I'll do the best I can. He says, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. There he is dispersing the water of righteousness. The righteousness of Messiah given to the thief, given to you and I. And it manifests itself in a right upright life, which doesn't mean you can't be in the same pool with somebody else of the opposite sex, or you can't listen to this music or that. Everybody can decide for themselves what they want to listen to or not listen to. But what it means is we can walk and live a life in which God looks at us and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because if we hunger and thirst, we're alive to him. And he'll fill us with his righteousness. And it will be made manifest in the world in which we live. Father, we thank you for this day. We are grateful for your word to us. Help us, Lord, to see that these statements in the Sermon on the Mount, these beatitudes, these statements of the fullness of God's grace bestowed upon us are not means by which we gain your favor, but rather they are descriptions of one who has gained your favor. Help us to recognize our need. Help us to be moved in our hearts to mourn because of it. Help us, Lord, thereby to stand meekly before you and one another, And help us then, Lord, to cry out, we thirst and we hunger for you. For you are our righteousness. And thus we need more of you in order to be more like you. Might you do that for us, that we would live worthily before you. For it's in Messiah's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.